0: Amen. Thank you, Janelle. Careful now. Look at that. You got applause for announcements. You didn't fail. We've, but we've all had experiences with failure, right? Like we've all had times in our lives where we've attempted something and it didn't work out well. I've, I've been somebody who's paddled out to try to surf for 20 something years. And I can't even, I I can't actually number the times that I've succeeded, (laughs) but I've got a lot of failure in my history in that. Have you ever like seen something on uh, Pinterest? And, and you're like, I'm going to make that thing. That's going to be awesome. And next thing you know, the cat's on fire with a glue gun. Uh, it's, it's, it's no fun to fail, but it is part of the human experience. Because everybody in this room, right, knows what it's like to, to fail at something. And I think that this is even potentially especially true when it comes to our spiritual life. When it comes to how it is that we're walking with God. We're going to be talking about the subject of failure a little bit this morning as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you'll want to find your way to Luke chapter 9, please. Last week, we read about the transfiguration event where Jesus took three of his disciples to a mountaintop and his physicality was changed in front of them and he became radiant and glorious as well as his clothes and... Elijah and Moses showed up there to chat with him and, uh, and, and and it culminated with a cloud covering them all, and a voice saying, "This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him in other we take from that you know in, in excluding all others in that the final voice is christ 's and Moses and Elijah would be representative even of the law and the prophets, so we talked about Christ being transcendent in that and, and we also talked about. God's glory and our own experiences in glory, how we would understand that. So today we're going to come off the mountaintop and we're going to find that things have not gone, uh, well, that have not been as, as happy in Jesus's absence down in the valley. Uh, and it's not unlike Moses descending from the mountaintop when, uh, when he came with the tablets and he found the Israelites there worshiping, you know, a God of their own making. The Exodus theme, as we pointed out last week, is all over this section here. And, and the thing about the, nar- the biblical narrative, like we think about how this is a repeated pattern. You, you, you go up on the mountaintop, something amazing is happening there, but when you descend back down, you find that things have gone kind of stupid on you. And it's a, it's a repeated pattern because the biblical narrative has failure as part of the story. To me, it's one of those things that lends authenticity to the Bible. If I were going to sit down and make up some sort of religion, I would put humans in a much better light than what the Bible does because it's there for us to see all the time from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve to Moses to the Israelites to Jesus' disciples. And it has been and will be part of our story as well. And we need to see what we can learn from this as as it concerns our journey of faith, as it touches that. Failure, what we'll learn, is not the end of the story. It's just a part of the story. Grace is how all things resolve. And that's such an important biblical idea to grasp. That's one of those things, again, a repeated pattern that we find all through Scripture. So if you're there in Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 37. It says, The next day, after they had come down, the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out to him, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. An evil spirit keeps seizing him, making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to cast out the spirit, but they couldn't do it so we'll stop there. So we see right off the bat that things were not going as well for the other nine disciples as they were for the three that got to follow Jesus up to the mountaintop. So it's the day after this transfiguration event. And you can imagine Jesus and and the guys that went with him. They're coming down the path that leads off the mountain. And they're coming close to the camp. And all of a sudden, there's a, you see there's a big commotion. And some people run up to him. And a guy yells out to him that, you know, he, he needs Help. He, he, you know, uh, he, uh, his son. He was asking his disciples to to help his son come out of bondage and into freedom, but his disciples weren't able to to do it. So the first thing that we want as a header over everything else that we're going to say today, and this is really important, something that we have to come to grips with, and that is, as Christ's followers, as His church, there are times when we fail to properly represent. Jesus in this world. There just are going to be times we don't do this well. I imagine this scene that Jesus and his disciples, they come across, they've descended from this beautiful encounter with the divine, armed with this whole new heavenly perspective. Uh, and, and, and they're met by this group of people who are probably shouting and distressed. Maybe the other nine disciples are hanging back, looking a little sullen, you know, kicking at the ground. And and, and so Jesus asked, Well, you know, what's up? What's going on here? And a guy speaks up on behalf of his son, explaining that his son was being terrorized by some demonic spiritual force. Now, I've talked about this before, and I just feel like it's important for me to repeat these things. Uh, the symptoms that he's describing here sound like epilepsy, with the speech affectations, the seizures, the foaming at the mouth. I mean, that would be something that I would assume that a doctor would look at and, and, and start with that thought. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, most translators even actually use the word epilepsy, even though that's kind of a stretch in the Greek. So we have to look at this. Was this just an ancient primitive way that, uh, you know, ancient men understood neurological dysfunctions? Was this just them trying to put, uh, you know, attach something to this because they didn't know what else it could have been? And that is really a hard one. I don't think that we have enough evidence to indicate that the ancient world viewed everything, every malady, as having some sort of spiritual um, significance to it. But I will say that our Western culture has pretty much eliminated the spiritual worldview from <laughs> from our sight altogether. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, I've recommended to you before Dr. Uh, Michael Heiser, and he is one who would argue that We really can't understand the biblical narrative unless we have a more robust view of spiritual entities, spiritual supernatural beings. I'll tell you, I'll just give you, you know, this is stuff you have to sort out on your own. I can't stand up here like some expert telling you exactly how to think. It's my belief that there are some hostile spiritual forces at work in this world which can sometimes be responsible for people's sicknesses and behaviors. There are scientists, there are even psychiatrists who've written books that that indicate that, you know, after exhausting every other possibility that they could think of, they came to this conclusion, there's, you know, something demonic going on here. This is the best we can tell. I do believe that those kinds of things can happen. However, I also think that as a person who represents spiritual leadership in the church, to put a big caveat on that statement, because in my own experience within the crazy church uh, and remember, when I'm talking about the crazy church, I'm talking about an independent, charismatic church that I was a part of in my formative Christian years, and there was a huge emphasis on faith and faith healing. And over the years, I've, I've read other people's stories along this line where there's this danger of using a one-size-fits-all metric when it comes to the biblical narrative. Uh, and so people will sometimes, uh, using this incident from the Gospels as a diagnosis, ...for their condition and they never get medical help for it or diagnosis even for their children's condition and they never actually get the help that they need. Uh, I read this terrible story one time of a girl uh, who described her desperate attempts at trying to hide the seizures that she had from her parents... Because every time that she would have those, her parents would then start trying to cast out demons from her, which of course was not only ineffectual but traumatizing uh, for this child. And this is a person who consequently leaves the faith. And my hope is that we're able to see that that sort of application of scripture is a problem, right? I mean, can we see that? Uh, As a spiritual leader, as one who's spent the majority of his life studying this word, my counsel is if you suffer, from a malady that seems unusual, or if for yourself, but especially for your children, get medical help. Like go to a doctor, see what's going on here. Uh, seek the advice of a physician while you pray and ask God to help, or show, or give guidance. I, you know, we live in a time where I believe God has provided real advances in medical care, and I think that is most often how He is helping and healing. Uh, you know, he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. If, if, if this is something I believe God's provided for us, and I think it's important for us to avail ourselves of that and, and, and not just poo-hoo uh, science uh, that way. Uh, but, of course, we have to be open to other possibilities as well. We're, we're spiritual people, right? So we'll be open to, you know, what may be going on there, what God may be wanting to do, uh, or even revealing. The main thing is be wise, in this. And don't do harm to yourself or to others in trying to be faithful to God. That's a simple thing to keep in mind. Just don't do harm to yourself or others while trying to remain faithful and trust the Lord. This account in the Gospels is trying to teach us something but not necessarily how to diagnose the difference between physical and spiritual illnesses. So that was just an aside. Now we'll get back to what I was going to talk about. The bottom line for this story in Luke is that there were some sort of sinister forces, spiritual forces actively oppressing and trying to destroy this young man. So the father came and he asked the other nine disciples, hey, can you help out here? You know, uh, maybe he'd heard that Jesus was in the area and he's thinking, oh, man, I've heard stories about Jesus. He'll be able to help my kid. And he takes him over there and he brings him over to the camp. And when he gets there, Jesus is not there. He finds the B team instead. Uh, and, And he asked the disciples if they can help. And if we think about this for a minute. And put it in the context of what we've been reading so far, at the very beginning of this chapter, Jesus gave authority to his disciples to go out and do this very same thing. Uh, This was not new for them. They weren't like, I don't imagine that they were even put on the spot with this whole thing. Uh, You know, it's very likely that they just said, you know, sure, we'll do that because... There wasn't any sort of time limit given on, on the, the authority that Jesus gave the disciples. He didn't say, yeah, now use this in 24 hours or you turn back into a pumpkin. But we weren't pumpkins to begin with. Anyway, it's, it's very likely that this guy brings his son and they're like, yeah, sure. Bring him on over here. We'll take care of this. We got this. No problem. But, you know, as the dad explains, they're doing what they knew to do, and nothing happens. Uh, The kid is still uh, in a problem state, and they failed to be of any help. And I try to imagine this scene. You know, they do what they did before. They pray over him. They they, they cite the authority uh, that Jesus gave them. Nothing happens. They try it again. Nothing happens. And by this time, you imagine the crowds kind of gathering around them, and and maybe even getting hostile. We know that in in Matthew and Mark's account of this story, that that the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there, and they were already hostile towards him. So you can imagine, that, I mean, they're sweating bullets by this point. You know, things are not going well. Maybe they're even hearing out in the crowd, "How dare you get this man's hopes up like this?" Isn't it interesting that the magic seems absent when the magician isn't around? Uh, you know. And the whole thing is so uncomfortable, at least for me, because it's so familiar. I cannot number the times that that people have observed me and I have failed to effectively and rightly represent the reality of who Jesus is. There have been many times in my life where people have been looking at me and they have not seen what Jesus is really like. Sometimes as the church, as those who represent Jesus in this broken world, as a community, we don't deliver. We fail. And not just in the big scandals that we read about of financial abuse or inappropriate behavior, things like that. Sometimes people just come to our fellowship to find Jesus, and sometimes all they find is us. And us is not much of an answer to anybody's needs. And this can be a source of contention in some people's minds. One more reason to think, well, there's nothing to this whole Jesus thing anyway. And they move along unnoticed and unchanged. Now, I'm not saying all this stuff to get us feeling bad or feeling guilty about this. Actually, I'm saying this for the exact opposite reason so that we can be honest, honest about the reality that we don't do this well. That we as a church don't do it well, we as individuals don't do it well, and we're not alone because every other church out there is in the same boat as we are. We don't do this well, this thing of representing Jesus. And that's not to make excuses for ourselves, but it needs to be acknowledged so that God can then begin to enlighten us, to reveal to us areas and nuances in our lives or attitudes or reactions to other people. That can be shaped into more of a Jesus-like response. But we don't have to be ashamed over this, that we don't do this well. Um, You know, this has been happening, as we see in our text, from the time that God decided to advance his plan through imperfect people. Uh, So it doesn't mean that we're bad Christians or a bad church. It's just part of the makeup of this project, sometimes not always, but sometimes we fail to rightly represent Jesus in reality. So what do we do when that happens? Well, we keep reading here in verse 41. Jesus said, you faithful, no, no, opposite. You faithless and corrupt people, how, must, how long must I be with you and put up with you? Then he said to the man, bring your son here. That's a really hope-filled statement there. <laughs> not the not not the rebuke about being faithless and corrupt and it's really not even clear who it is he's talking to in that he's either talking to the crowds or he's talking to his disciples i think it's less likely that he's talking to his disciples this is what the things that he's been saying to the crowds more than once uh you know the fickleness of them should i believe in jesus should i not believe in him maybe one more miracle will convince me but what's hopeful is jesus's command bring your son here bring him to me. And that's the command I want to live by. I, I, to, to bring everyone to Jesus. I'm not going to bog down with my own inabilities or my own perceptions of things. Let's put the focus on Jesus. Uh, in fact, that's where this story goes. Verse 42. As the boy came forward, the demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy and then gave him back to his father and awe gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. So Jesus asks for the boy to be brought to him, and there's a convulsion, and Jesus addresses a spirit rebuking it, and this tormenting darkness that had been oppressing this child gets kicked to the curb, and the boy is set free. So Matthew and Mark's account of this have a lot more details uh, in this. Luke is really sparse. Like, You know, Matthew and Mark both go into like, you know, a complete after action report uh, of the thing. Luke doesn't really give us any of that. So we have to consider that. What is Luke trying to get across to us in this account? What is he trying to say? And ultimately, I believe it's this, that despite the inabilities of the disciples and despite the cynicism that may have been present in the crowd, Jesus still does what he does. And it's a reminder to us that failure on our part does not diminish Christ's power to redeem. Just like Christ's power isn't increased by our successes because it's really not about us anyway. The scene can actually take the pressure off us as Christians, especially as it comes to this area of asking God for his help in in things like healing or whatever it may be. I don't know if you're like me, but If you are, sometimes we think about asking God for help, we feel this strange sense of pressure in this, like, you know, almost a fear, like, what if it doesn't work? You know, I'm going to pray for healing, I'm going to pray about this, what if it doesn't happen, or what if I don't have enough faith? And I think that comes from mistaking our ability with Christ's power. We start assuming that there's some level of faith that I've got to muster up, or some kind of right prayer that I have to say, or depending on what religious show you're watching, the right amount of money to send in after the broadcast. Uh, and in all of that, we're transferring our attention on our ability to do something instead of Christ's power to, to redeem. We lose sight of the fact that this is all about what, what Christ can do, not us. And the crowd, when you think about it, was filled with awe because of the majesty of God that was revealed, not anything that the disciples did. As a matter of fact, you notice in the narrative, the disciples pretty much disappear altogether. Nobody's even thinking about their failure at, at that point. Everybody's focused on what it was that God was able to accomplish. Now, by saying this, in all of this, I'm not trying to suggest that failure on our part is you know, just fine, don't even think about it as though nothing matters. Certainly we have a life that God's called us to, and and we want to commit our all to receiving and expressing that life into this world. Jesus said in Matthew, there's works that we're going to do that are going to bring glory to the Father, and certainly we want to get in on that. We want to participate in that. But the danger we face is that we start getting too focused on our ability or power to pray or to live a good testimony or whatever it may be and we forget that that Christ is the source of whatever power or good that happens in, in our lives. I guess what I'm getting at is that Jesus is not limited by our failures or inabilities. One of those an example of that is I've grown up my whole Christian life and I'm just sharing from my heart here. So, you know, you can take it or leave it, but I've grown up my whole life as a christian hearing that the the church in america is losing its way and failing jesus and that somehow the future of christianity is threatened by our failure or the failure of our culture as if you know as if the fate of god's global church somehow depended on what happens in america and that's another topic but it is a mindset that needs to be challenged in our thinking but more than that jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail over his church Meaning, and when he says a statement like that, you know, sometimes we imagine great battles of spiritual forces or whatever, but given the context and what was taking place there, when Jesus makes that statement, he's saying the church is never going to die. He's saying that that's, you know, that's going to go on. It's never going to be extinguished. It's never going to go out. Uh, The future of Christianity is not dependent on whether or not we do this well, right? The bottom line is our inability or failure has no bearing on Christ's power to redeem any situation, and it certainly has no bearing on whether Jesus is going to fulfill his promise to return and set all things right. So our faith has to be in Christ's power, not our abilities or our faith or any other factor. It all comes down to Jesus. Regardless of how things look, we we want to trust him. So picking back up in verse 43... While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Listen to me, and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them, so they couldn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. And and that's where we'll be stopping today you know, we see also in this that Jesus can be a real downer sometimes. Uh, you know, they're all excited and marveling over this incredible healing of this young lad. And all everybody's smiling. Jesus gathers his disciples close to him and says, hey, by the way, I'm going to get captured by my enemies. <laughs> say, eh, okay. Uh, and it's one of those things, you know, we have to think about that. Why does Jesus suddenly change the subject in his uh, to his arrest, which will result in his death right in the midst of of this glorious deliverance that's taking place here. Just like in the previous section, Peter announces, confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And right on the heels of that, Jesus starts talking about his own death. And then they're up on the mountaintop and they're seeing the glory of Christ. And Moses and Elijah are there talking to Jesus about his exodus, his exodus, meaning, in other words, his death that's going to be happening. Three times in a row now, Jesus is capture and implied death is forecast and it drives home the point that messiah's victory his glory and our triumph is only possible through the cross of christ and that is a very religiously familiar thing to say all of us have heard that more than once i'm sure if we've been around church the the victory that we have is through the cross of christ and we've lost over time The nature of this statement, how outrageously contradictory that statement is on the surface. And again, it's like a coach gathering his team around saying, we're going to win this game by giving up hundreds of points and we'll never score one shot. Uh, Coach, it doesn't work like that. Do you know this game? But that's the thing about God and the story that he's telling so much of the victory that he accomplishes is hidden from view until it's not. And that's the beauty of this. When Jesus died on the cross, he was a public spectacle. When Jesus died on the cross, everybody saw it happen. Everybody was willing to hang around there. He was lifted up, and, and all of its murderous glory was there. And it was horrifying, and everybody saw it. But when Jesus rose again, nobody saw it. His closest disciples saw evidence of it afterwards, but nobody actually witnessed him rise. And it's just a reminder to us about the nature even of failure, that apparent failure is often the seedbed for God's glory. Christ's power is so often revealed through what we perceive as failure. The disciples didn't get what he was talking about. In fact, it scared them. They didn't want to talk about this anymore. Maybe he's losing it or something. For Jesus to be taken by his enemies would have spelled certain failure from their perspective. But this is the great mystery of the kingdom project, something that we don't want to lose sight of because it's a pattern revealed over and over and over again through the scriptures, something for us to come back to again and again in our own life and our experiences as we fail, as we face our own failures in this broken world that God is often working in a contradictory fashion from the way we understand the world to work the way we understand things to work the way we even understand and define failure and success it's how the apostle paul could could make such an outlandish claim in 1st corinthians 12 that god's power is made complete in our weakness the contradictory concepts of power and weakness it's when we're weak he said that we're made strong it's so often through those times of apparent failure that god's power is actually coming to bear in our lives, in our experiences, even in the world around us. Things are not always as they seem. Something that we keep losing sight of in our lives. Something that we keep allowing news broadcasts to contradict. So that we think, oh, it's falling apart. Let's remember, things are not always as they seem. When Jesus hung on a cross, it looked like it was over. It's time to just check out. It's done. We go home. Let's watch TV and forget the whole thing. And yet what was happening there out of view, out of sight, has changed the world as we know it now. Things are not always as they seem. The the wisdom of this world declares that power is revealed through resources and gain and control. But God's wisdom smiles as he confounds the mighty through the apparent weakness of his bumbling followers all through history this is the delightful paradox of God's kingdom at work on earth. And I I speak from my own years of experience of of imperfectly following this Messiah. Those times of weakness and doubt when my perceptions of God and faith were so pressed in that I was so close to being crushed. Those were the launch pads in my life for whole new experiences of grace and often the pathway of ministry to bring help or healing to other people. When, when I was at my lowest point in life, something beautiful like this church was able to be a result of it. If, if you struggle in your faith, if you worry about falling short or failing, take heart God's glory may just be growing all around you. You just can't see it yet. So the gospel reveals to us that a life of following Jesus includes times when things seem to fall apart and we're just ready to fall apart with them. (laughs) It's been that way from the beginning. Sometimes we're marching towards heaven on earth with just great precision, just barely stepping on the ground as we move forwards, And Other times we look like the ministry of silly walks, like as if we can't even stand up straight on our own. Sometimes we fall flat and we fail, but even failure, if we can see it from the standpoint of this necessary grace can be an instrument used by God to mature us and to bring us further along and further in to God's great plan, redemptive plan. If we can see it this way, that our failure does not diminish Christ's power and that it can be used by God to even draw us closer to him. If we can see failure through the lens of, of heaven's grace, we realize then there's no reason to get discouraged or feel ashamed. Certainly we can feel disappointed. Certainly we may feel like I want to do better than this. That's all right. But discouragement and shame, those have no place in our experience. That necessary grace has covered all of that. If we've fallen flat, that's all right. We get back up. We get back up in the grace of Jesus Christ who loves us. And we remember that we stand in a long line of stumblers, but stumblers who are loved by God and who are being drawn into a better understanding of ourselves and of the world around us. Our calling is to acknowledge our dependence on him and embrace all the possibilities that are inherent in his love for us. Anything is possible if we'll trust in the God of all possibilities. Right on? All right. Very cool. Will will you stand with us, please? Father, we thank you so much for your word that we can come to again and again, week by week, we come back to this word And no matter what it is that we face through the week in our lives, maybe it's been failure, maybe it's been heartbreak, maybe things haven't gone the way we wanted, we can look at your word and we can draw comfort from this. And we remind ourselves and we remember there's something bigger than just our own circumstances or the particulars of our details going on here. Something wonderful, something glorious is happening in your grace being revealed in the world. So draw us into your grace, Lord Jesus. Right now, this morning, Father, I just pray for every one of us. If we've come in here and and struggled at all with the idea of not being able to do this well, Father, as an act of our will, we take those failures. We take them all and we lay them at your feet. And we ask you, Lord, to take this as our offering. (laughs) This is our offering to you, Lord. Now reassemble it into what it is that rightly reflects who you are and what you're doing in this world. Reassemble us, Lord God, as we present ourselves to you. Reassemble us in ways that reveal your great mercy and love into this world. We pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.